Look at me. What you perceive creates an illusion of who I am. You don't know me. <laughs> you don't know me. These arms hold the weight of my ambition. These hands craft efficiency. I build machines that gather light and give energy to my needs. Solar panels that power to make our future green. You don't know me. You just see me. My fingers are on the pulse of man's quest. I build robotics to inform what's next. And these innovations lie our success. You don't know me. I will belong to no limits. I code, I build, I create, I make. You don't know me. You don't know me. You don't know me. But you will. Hollywood Live fans, today in studio we have a special guest. L.A. prosecutor Deborah Archuleta is here to talk about today's legal news, celebrity stalking cases, and the drama of becoming a judge. Stay with us. You are tuned in to Black Hollywood Lives. Justice is served. Hello and welcome to Justice is Served. We have a special show today. Thank you for joining us. My name is Chelsea Galicia. I am an attorney joined by my co-host and fellow attorney Shaka Smith. How's it going, Shaka? Great. Glad to be here. And we also have a very special guest. This is Deborah Archuleta. She is an L.A. prosecutor who is running for judge. She's got decades. I don't mean to say that to make you sound old, but just... (laughs) Decades of experience. How about many years? Many years. A whole 26 years of experience in uh, as a prosecutor, prosecuting uh, celebrity stalking cases, sexual assault, domestic violence, rape, murder, the worst of the violent crimes here in Los Angeles. And she is here today uh, to give us some insight into what it's like to be a prosecutor and some of her experience. So, welcome. Thanks for being Thank here. You. Thank you for having me. It's an exciting day. Awesome. So, we always start out with our celebrity news, and just, I mean, feels like moments ago, but just yeah. hours ago, we had the result, the verdict in the Derrick Rose case. What was that case about, Shaka? Well, yeah, that was an interesting case where, uh, I guess, the girlfriend of Derrick Rose... I like uh, how you do the air quotes. Oh, yeah. She was a girlfriend at one point, but no longer the girlfriend at this time, but they still had a close sexual relationship, and she had alleged that she was raped by Derrick Rose and a few members of... um, a few of his friends. Um, And ultimately, the case went to, uh, to a civil case. It went to a jury. And just today, the jury came back and said, not liable. Yeah. Deborah, how um, common is it that we would have a civil case without a criminal case first? Well, it's fairly unusual that a a victim of sexual assault would not report to the police uh, and go through the uh, criminal justice system. Uh, I don't know why the victim in this case chose not to do that and chose to pursue a civil route. I mean, there's several theories about why that might happen. But my experience in my professional career is that typically victims of sexual assault call the police. There's a police investigation, and the matters are typically handled first in the criminal justice world. Yeah, she had, a, she had unfortunately, a lot of um, evidence, text messages, and things of that nature that seemed to allude to consent to, um, to what happened, and I think that's probably what sunk the criminal case. Well, and the standard of proof in a criminal case is much higher than it would be for a civil case. And also... In a criminal case, Mr. Rose uh, would most likely have been 
you know, if he was uh, found guilty, he would have served time in custody. Whereas in a civil case, it appears that the victim was seeking monetary damages. Right. So you've got an extensive history of dealing with celebrities related to your career. You spent several years as the head of the stocking unit. Yes, I did. And so there's, you know, some of those celebrity cases are ones that we've heard about, uh, like yes. Mel Gibson and, and Catherine Zeta-Jones. Correct. Um, did you personally prosecute those, or were those that in your department that you supervised? No, I personally prosecuted those um, cases. What What is that like to do those kinds of cases? I mean, I wonder if are these celebrities really involved, and are they really helpful, or are they just kind of take a back seat? And, and I think they saw me sort of as a nuisance. The celebrities did. Yes, they weren't particularly grateful for the services that I was trying to render uh, to them and the public on That's their weird. Why do you think that is? I'm not sure why, but, um, you know, they're used to a different kind of a world than being involved with, you know, the local police agencies and the district attorney's office. Uh, justice was served in both of those cases, but there's many layers that you have to go through to get to, you know, either Mr. Gibson or Ms. Zeta-Jones and Mr. Douglas. And uh, I think that for people that breathe their rarefied air, they're not used to being victims of crime, and they're not really used to dealing with the system. I was going to say, they probably didn't like to have to show up and give reports and have to make appointments to, you know, prosecute their case. Well, and they're used to a certain kind of a treatment and a status that the rest of us common folk don't really enjoy. <laughs> and you just treated them the same that you treated all your victims and... Perhaps there was well, um, except that I had to go and meet them. Typically, when victims of crime come to court and I interview them, they come to my office. But in those particular cases, for security reasons and other reasons, uh, I actually went to them. So you were telling me that there's actually a lot more cases of stalking, celebrity stalking, yes. than we hear about. Like, how much more common is it than we have a sense of? Well, especially in today's culture with all of the access to information, social media, and uh, just the general interest of the public in these cases, it goes on quite frequently, but many times the celebrities do not want uh, it to become public information. They don't want to give information to their stalker uh, because sometimes the stalkers actually feed off of the thrill and the vibe that they get that you know, if the celebrity is in danger. Who, wasn't there one, wasn't there one recently? Was it... Kendall uh, Jenner? Kendall Jenner, but the, oh, I th was there also a sel like a Selena Gomez, or I, I can't remember, but who we talked about that the the uh, defendants seemed to like have some sort of sick joy in at least yes. oh, being yeah. in the same room. Yeah. Hearing the description of what they've the done. And the celebrity, they don't want to empower the stalker, just like a non-celebrity victim. They don't necessarily want to empower or embolden their stalker. So it goes on quite a bit. Um, I worked very closely with the Major Crimes Unit for the Sheriff's Department and Threat Management Unit for LAPD, and they would sort of independently try to navigate and negotiate some of those stalker-infested waters, if you will, and um, then they would never actually be prosecuted, the stalkers. They would try to negotiate a way out of it. Yeah, what, yeah, what, is there a bright line? I imagine, you know, these celebrities have millions of fans, and they're all constantly tweeting, and so they could be found, so they probably have a lot of stalkers. What's the bright line for the stalker that should be, you know, There's you should no intervene? such thing. It's a, it's a pattern of conduct. It's mm -hmm. a course of conduct, and it has to be threatening in nature. So mere presence alone is not enough, for example. But there has to be some uh, conduct that uh, the victim finds threatening, and it has to be a course of conduct, two or more acts. You were telling me about one celebrity who was not too helpful because he refused to say that he was in fear. Yes. Are you allowed to name... 
Uh, yeah, this Governor night. Schwarzenegger, when he was uh, the sitting governor, he had received a threat, and um, I ended up prosecuting uh, that individual for attempted terrorist threats because uh, the governor the governator <laughs> going to say that he was afraid, which was one of the elements required to prove that crime. That's very interesting. And I wonder sometimes if, if people don't know that they, as a obsessed or raving fan, are crossing the line into stalker behavior. How? Yeah, have you found that? That a fan was like, I didn't know. I just <laughs> thought I was being a fan. Well, ignorance of the law is no excuse, right. as we all know in this room. But, um, you know, uh, one person's fan is another person's stalker, and everyone obsesses a little bit differently, and you see a variety of the way that their conduct sort of displays itself. Um, I personally am a big Bruce Springsteen fan, and I've seen him over 65 times, but that doesn't mean that I don't think Bruce <laughs> thinks I'm a stalker. And I often in the front row of his concerts, but... Uh, because I, I think about, you know, recently we saw Kendall Jenner. She testified against her stalker. But right. this guy followed her into her driveway, yes. right? So he's like, well, I mean, I, I don't know the guy, but he can be like, well, I'm just a fan, and I just followed her in into her driveway. At worst, I'm a trespasser, not a stalker. Yeah, especially in Hollywood with all the tours and the home tours. Right. Is that any kind of defense? I thought I was a trespasser, not a stalker. Well, it shows some, you know, awareness of the law, but uh, no, it's probably not a defense. But you'd have to have a repeat course of conduct, and other than maybe trying to talk to her, you'd have to have something maybe that was a little more perce uh, perceived by her as being threatening. But it's her state of mind that's relevant as to whether or not she perceives that this is threatening conduct or not. Interesting. You have been an advocate for women and uh, kids for, for a long time in your career, especially domestic violence cases, sexual yes. assault, things of that nature. Yes. Is anything, was the inspiration for that desire to want to seek justice for those kind of victims related to any kind of personal experience that, that you had? Well, I myself was the victim of domestic violence when I was 19. I never really saw myself as a victim. I've always thought of myself as a survivor. And once I got through that experience, it actually motiva motivated me to uh, continue my education, finish college, and go to law school. And it wasn't really the primary motivation or inspiration, but one day I found myself talking to a domestic violence victim when I was uh, working up in Pasadena. And she looked at me and she said, you know, you, Miss Archuleta, you really don't know what it's like to be in my shoes. And I said, well, actually, I do know what it's like. And she just kind of looked at me and her jaw dropped and she didn't perceive me as someone who could have endured something like she had been going through, although I ended up having to have brain surgery because I had a blood clot on the brain. And uh, so mine was, so was much serious. more significant yeah. than maybe um, a cut or a bruise or a black eye. But she couldn't quite grasp the concept that I knew what she was talking about. And um, yeah, it just it kind of dawned on me one day. I'm like, hmm, maybe that's why I've been doing this for over 20 years. Wow. Yeah, I, I'd like to know, we know that domestic violence victims, sexual assault victims, typically underreport. Uh, for you, how do you yes. get these victims to tell their story and to continue with the prosecution? Well, obviously, there's a lot of reasons why a victim of sexual assault or domestic violence does not want to go forward. I mean, typically... Uh, these, and I'll say women, because primarily, by and large, the victims are women. They want to keep the family together. There's economic pressures to remain with the batterer because he might be providing, you know, financial support. Um, we can't force a victim to testify, but we try to put support services around them to make the experience, if they choose to move forward on it, as pleasant as possible, which it's never pleasant. 
and the fact of the matter is, especially in the sexual assault cases, more, vic more women do not report because oftentimes they end up, I guess, feeling in, in some instances it's justifiable. They feel re-victimized by coming forward to the police and mm -hmm. having to relive the traumatic experience in open court, both at a preliminary hearing and then typically, again, at a jury trial in front, in front of a room full of strangers. I've also done child molestation cases. It's the same situation where we have young children, uh, four or five years old, having to get on the stand and testify. Is there any way a around that? I mean, I know that a defendant has a right to face his accuser, but, I mean, when the accuser is four or five years old, I mean, is there any fair way to... We, we still understand the rights of the defendant, but to make it a non-traumatizing situation for a child... Well, it's always a traumatizing situation, whether you're 5 or 85. Yeah, that's um, true, too. But uh, they have some instances you can have uh, a child victim testify uh, in a separate room or the defendant can be in a separate room for a very limited period of time. Um, but typically, that's never been my experience in L.A. County that that has actually been granted hmm, uh, that's interesting. by court. So, but those provisions are pretty minimal because of the constitutional right to confront and cross-examine right. the witnesses. I, I imagine that people have asked you this question a lot. Tell me how often you get this question. Let's hear what the question <laughs> is, and I'll let you know. You see sort of the worst of humanity day in and day out for the last 20-some-odd years. How do you handle emotionally all of the tragic cases and the victims, and how, how do you keep going? I, I, I really don't know how you could do that so I'm so curious to, to to understand how you've managed to keep going with this heaviness all these years well someone has to do the heavy lifting and yeah. uh, we need that uh, unfortunately in our society and uh, I'm just the person to do that I'm able to compartmentalize and uh, to scrupulously try to, you know, uphold the defendant's rights in these cases, but at the same time advocate for justice for my victims. And so uh, sometimes it's more difficult than others. I've had cases where children were killed. I've had cases where women were killed. I've had cases where men were killed. I've had cases where elders were killed. I've done everything from shaken babies to elder abuse. I call it basically from the cradle to the grave. And uh, it takes a toll. I mean, I remember one time I had a case with a child who was uh, run over during a hit-and-run accident. And I remember the night before the closing argument, I had to go to the hospital because I was having chest pains. And I had mm. two young kids at the time, and I thought, yeah, I hope I can get through the closing argument tomorrow and, and maintain my health and my composure, which, you know, I was able to do. But uh, it does take a toll, but someone has to do it. Well, well thank yeah. you. Yeah. I'll thank, uh, on behalf of all the listeners, thank you for being willing to You're welcome. To, it's been a privilege. It's actually been a privilege to represent the people of the state of California. You know, I recently uh, tried to get on a jury, not tried to get on a jury, but I was very <laughs> Whoever willing. Whoever does that. <laughs> I, was, I was willing I hear and able. I just the opposite all the time. I know. I was willing and able to, for this one week, you know, attend a, a trial, and I would have been happy to do it, especially when I heard the nature of the, the claim. It was um, a man who was uh, uh, charged with murder of a transgender woman. There was, um, he had also had prior gun charges, so there was going to, it was a felon in possession of a gun, and uh, I think a, they were going to offer a gang add-on. So it was a, a very... Um, 
to say the least, interesting case right. that I thought was worth my time. This wasn't like a silly, you know, possession kind of case where I was going to sit there for no a weekend. No such thing. <laughs> I understand that you would say that. <laughs> so so here I am showing up bright-eyed, bush-tailed every, every day. The, the jury selection, I, I lasted three days there. And then I was excused. Do you think it's just because I'm a lawyer? Or are there other... What are some other common reasons, or really, what any lawyer gets kicked off? I would have kicked you off, not only because you're a lawyer, because you're a beautiful, young, attractive woman, and you would have been a distraction. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's funny. I never, hear, right? never, <laughs> never thought of that. I would have kicked you off because you were a lawyer, so there. Really, it, it oh, just... Yeah. I never want a lawyer. I've never kept a lawyer on a jury, and I've tried over 100 jury trials during my experience. Oh, wow. But I was so shocked in my experience that I saw people talking to each other, like, What's the prosecution? What's the defendant? Like, they had no idea about anything. And I was like, this is the quality of people. This is the jury pool. I mean, are, do we have good juries in Los Angeles? Or because we don't teach civics in school, we have poor quality jurors and then maybe poor quality outcomes? Well, I think the fact that we don't teach civics in school anymore is definitely an issue. But the great thing about a county like Los Angeles is we have such a diverse population. We get people from all walks of life, and that's part of what makes the uh, jury system work. Uh, some days better than others, but I will say this. It's always important to be an informed electorate. Whether you are voting in the upcoming elections or you come in as a juror, it's nice to have life experience and to be just informed about what is going on. And I think it's really vitally important that people try to be informed before they come out and perform their civic duty, be it voting or be it to perform jury duty. Yeah, and that's what I hope that we accomplish with this show, is not to just inform you of what is going on in celebrities' legal lives, <laughs> but also to use those as moments to, to teach us about how the law works and our and you know, to, responsibilities as citizens. And to hopefully govern your own interactions with the law, because a lot of times if you have no idea what the law is, you're not sure how to interact with police or with prosecutors. Uh, do well. what the police tell you and keep your hands in sight. <laughs> <laughs> Good advice. Good advice. So 26 years, and now you are running to become a judge. Yes. One of the questions that comes up for me is, if you have been a, a prosecutor for so long, you you work closely with law enforcement, uh, you you seek you know convictions. Or how no, I seek justice. Oh, uh, okay. That's good. That's a fair uh, correction. Am I alone? Do you think other people say, you know, can can is this really fair for somebody who's been on one side for so long to be a judge? Can she be a, a good objective partial, judge? Yeah. Well, that's an interesting question that you ask, and I will tell you that uh, I've gotten a lot of support in my race from the defense bar. I have many friends that are defense attorneys, and I have tremendous support from the defense bar. And they routinely tell me that they think prosecutors make better judges than their own defense. Why? Brethren because maybe they feel that their defense brethren have seen everything and heard every story, and they tend to be um, harder on the defendants. Mm -hmm. Whereas, as prosecutors, believe it or not, and I don't think most people really realize this, we're there to seek justice. We don't just seek convictions. We don't lock up people at all costs. I'm not saying that there is not the occasional overzealous prosecutor or overzealous police officer. I'm not saying that at all. 
But frankly, our ethical obligation is different from anybody else in the courtroom, and that is to seek justice. I, I think most of the public's understanding is that you get a case and you have no choice but to continue with it regardless of your belief of the defendant's guilt. Have you had a case where you got it and you know, you're going to prosecute it and you realize, wait a minute, this guy's not guilty or I don't feel this person's guilty? Correct. That has happened. And then I take it to my supervisor and either I resolve the case or it gets reassigned uh, elsewhere. It didn't happen all that often, but there was the occasional case where I felt that the prosecution was not well-founded. Also, at times, we've had cases where the district attorney's office is in charge of filing the cases. Then we take it, for example, to a preliminary hearing before a judge, and the judge might tease out or dismiss some of the cases that they, or the counts of the particular case that they did not feel that there was sufficient evidence. And ultimately, the jury, if the case goes to jury trial, will decide whether or not the people have met their burden of proof, which is beyond a reasonable doubt. Yeah, I think that's a good myth to correct because I think yeah. to even to some extent I have that in my mind that the prosecutor's job is See to get why a conviction. You off the <laughs> so no, most people believe that, and it's not true. It, that's that's not in fact. What are some other common myths that you that you hear that you find yourself correcting? Um, well, that the district attorney's office is in cahoots completely with uh, law enforcement. Uh, that's not true, and in fact, we work very hard to be an independent. Uh, uh, arm of the criminal justice system, and uh, our job is to, uh, we don't investigate crimes, we essentially uh, prosecute crimes. Another thing that I've heard recently, I was at an event last week at the Jordan Downs Housing Project, speaking to the uh, members of the community there, was that in the new initiative process, um, someone was trying to indicate that the district attorney's office likes to prosecute juveniles as adults in adult court, and that is not the case. Um, what happens is we try to uh, work with juveniles to the best of our ability, and then there's only certain types of crimes that a juvenile would be considered for adult court treatment. But we have moved to a more, uh, I think, rehabilitative focus across the board in uh, criminal justice. So I'm going to have you slide on over closer to, to, to Shaka. Is that some a, a tr is that a, a trend or is that like something that you think is like going to be a permanent change to our criminal justice system that we're going to be more um, sort of in the in that direction of well, finding treatment and I will tell you uh, there's always been treatment available. I will say this: if we have people that come before the court that are addicted to drugs or alcohol, but more primarily drugs. There have always been treatment programs available, but we have, don't always have a lot of teeth to force people into drug treatment options. If a person is addicted to drugs, then we can get them into drug treatment programs. Since Prop 47 came out, there was this initiative process where people wanted uh, violent offenders to be locked up and nonviolent offenders to be given additional opportunities. Mm -hmm. Well, now four years later, uh, there are some in the criminal justice in law enforcement worlds that believe that that has led to an increase in crime, and many statistics bear that out. However, there is a difference of opinion on that. Um, I think that we are going to go more rehabilitative in the future. There's some amendments on this November ballot to that extent. And then what typically happens, and this has happened over the course of the last 40, 50 years, is then we get a real uptick in violent crime, and we're kind of heading in that direction again. Hmm. And then what happens is people kind of overreact, and then the pendulum swings back 
the other direction. Interesting. Well, yeah, yes. I was going to say we just did a special, uh, the, the 13th, doc, 13th documentary. Yes. So, which I haven't had a chance to see, but I really want to check that out. Yeah. So coming from that, uh, I got a couple questions. Um, oh the, boy. <laughs> the first question really is: Have you ever prosecuted cases? Where you prosecuted by the law, but you thought maybe that shouldn't be the law, and I'm thinking really in mind of like possession cases of marijuana because that's coming up on the ballot here too in California. Um, or what are your thoughts in general? We have about a, that? we have not prosecuted possession of drug cases for quite a long time because there's different propositions and programs out there available. In a, in a way, straight possession has been somewhat decriminalized, but it's the selling of the drugs that we still prosecute. Okay. Hmm. So, uh, And that's also going to change uh, depending on what happens on the ballot initiatives coming up now in November. Okay. And then another question was, the big thing was about plea deals in the documentary. And I found it shocking. And, you know, as an attorney, you know, I thought I kind of knew the field. And I didn't realize it was like, what, 95, 97% yeah. um, end up in plea deals. Yes. Uh, what's your take on the fairness of plea deals? And are some defendants not necessarily railroaded, but do, do they feel because of their economic position they have to take a plea deal? I would say no and no. Uh, no. First of all, because of their economic position, a defendant is always entitled to free counsel. Mm -hmm. And we have some very fine uh, public defenders and bar panel appointed, court appointed lawyers in, in, within the county of Los Angeles, and I'm assuming that you know, is statewide and nationwide, actually. A defendant has a constitutional right for representation, and as you know, if, one can't, if you can't afford one, one will be appointed for you. So no, I don't think it's a question of economics in that sense. The other thing is, Every defendant that takes enters into a plea has to do so freely and voluntarily. It's in the verbiage of the plea itself. So I think at times there's a perception that clients, defendants, suspects are railroaded into plea deals. But if a judge were to think that, or even the defense attorney thought that their client was being railroaded, it would be an invalid plea, and okay. they could withdraw that plea. Um, if they feel that they weren't fully advised of the consequences, for example, immigration consequences are now part of the plea deal that we've been having to advise uh, defendants for the last, I think it's probably been 12 to 15 years of immigration consequences within their plea deal. But there's a full advisement and it's the defendant who has to knowingly and willingly and voluntarily agree to the uh, negotiated disposition. The only time really a defendant does not have a say in the outcome is when they go to trial, either court trial or jury trial, and then their fate is in the hands of either the trial judge or the jury. Do you see another one of the problems that the movie brought, brings up is that some people can't afford bail, so then they stay in jail for a long time, and then they're so anxious to get out that they will take the plea because they can't the afford to be out. to their income, yeah. Yeah. Well, the bail is never set proportion to income. It's it's set proportionally to the severity of the crime. So should we should we you think maybe look towards income as a factor when we're setting bail? I know that there's a push that bail is perceived to be a violation of equal protection of the law, and I can say this: uh, I have many friends actually in the bail industry, and I understand the the arguments. But I also understand working on the law enforcement perspective that if we didn't have bail or some sort of surety or assurance that the uh, defendant was going to come back to court, there is going to be a tremendous amount of resources to go out and detain and arrest and bring in unwilling participants into the criminal justice system. And 
it's going to be dangerous for the defendants, it's going to be dangerous for the police, and it's going to be dangerous to maybe other members. For example, the police go show up and say, okay, Mr. So-and-so, it's time you didn't come to court today, we're arresting you. And we all know that these situations can get very emotional and volatile, and people's lives are at risk, both the civilians as well as law enforcement. Yeah. Uh, you are running for judge now because uh, you want the laws to be upheld and administered fairly, regardless of race, creed, ethnicity, gender. You're quoted as saying, I've always had a passion for justice, and to be honest, I've always had concerns that the poor did not get the same level and quality of justice. Do you see that, that that has been true here in L.A., that people don't always get a fair shake depending on they're a woman or they're a minority or their socioeconomic background? Well, I think I also probably stated in there also sexual orientation, because I've actually prosecuted a lot of cases with members um, of the uh, gay and lesbian community at times and transgender community that also have felt marginalized in the criminal justice system. I don't want to say that I've actually seen disparity in that way, but I can say this. I'm a member of NAJA, which is the National Association for Equal Justice in America out of Compton. I've been going down there for a couple years because I really wanted to hear the concerns of the community. And what I have noticed there is that they, the people in that community do not seem to have access to information and uh, to the people that they need to have access to to get their questions answered. So I've kind of taken upon myself to try to be a conduit of information between members of the African-American community on behalf of NASIA and try to get them access to information within the district attorney's office if they have a particular case or a concern, then I try to at least help direct them with who they should speak to. Yeah. And was that something that you can do while you're a judge? Uh, no. Mm -hmm. And how does a judge help in this um, I mean, we know that they're supposed to be fair and impartial, but how, how is it that you think that your uh, skills are best be used as a judge to administer um, justice rather than where you are now as a prosecutor? Well, one of the reasons I decided to run for judge is that I wanted to have a wider sphere of influence within the community, within the county of Los Angeles, other than the caseload that I currently carry at the district attorney's office. I think what makes for a good judge is my life experience, not only as a prosecutor, but as a person. I'm a wife, a mother, a daughter, a sister. You know, I've been making decisions my whole life. And um, I think to be a good judge, you have to have heart and you have to have a brain and you have to be able to know when to use one more than the other or use them together. That you know? is a very special <laughs> skill that I don't yeah. think a lot of people have. Well. I think that's kind of what we need in this day and age. Yeah. Speaking of treating people differently, this race has brought out some drama that I thought was not part of political races for judges. Uh, this is like... Neither did I. <laughs> yeah, it's like, did, you, did you know what you were getting into? No, I had no idea. And if I did, I don't know if I would do it again. I mean, this is rough, and you've had to, to put up with some, some harsh words said about you. In the L.A. Times, uh, there was an article that came out that said, you bring a combative style that may serve her as a prosecutor but would not translate well to the bench, and then about your opponent, that he has a calm demeanor that a judge must have. And I know, I, I, without even talking to you, about it first, that I know that that was a sexist comment because I know that I have been accused of the <laughs> same thing, of being too assertive or bossy, or da, 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 when I see my male colleagues do the exact same thing and are revered for it. So how... how did, oh, yes, they're assertive, dynamic, confident, independent, 
um, you know, all of those. And competent, yes, but when you're a woman, you get labeled differently. But I can say this. If I can't take a few harsh words out of the L.A. Times, then I better not put on the black robe and uh, dispense justice on a daily basis. Yeah, that's great. And so far, you are, I think we can uh, fairly call you the front runner. In the primary, you yes. faced off with three other opponents. Yes, two other prosecutors and me. And then um, you got 47% of the vote. Yes. Of the total vote, which is great because it puts you sort of in the lead, but it was just you know, a couple points short of where you wouldn't have even had to go to this race. Correct. But here we are today. Here we are, three mm-hmm. weeks minus one day. <laughs> All right. So uh, definitely everybody should get out to, to vote and to consider Deborah for, for judge. What are some ways that um, citizens can be informed about the judges? Because most of us yeah. don't know. We don't hear from, from these judges. And all we see are those three words that appear under your name on the ballot, which I know has been another source of interesting yes. um, part of this adventure. I didn't know before um, preparing for this that c- opponents sort of fight over the titles of the, of the kind of lawyer, the kind of experience that you say right. that you have. Uh, some people, they want to be the, the hard-driving um, gang prosecutor, homicide. Attorney, you know, there, there's a fight for those three words. Uh, were you surprised by how catty almost that fight got? I would characterize more as brutal. Okay. <laughs> uh, yes, I was surprised. Actually, my opponent has sued me three times over the uh, ballot designation challenge. Uh, I was found to, uh, I'm running as a violent crimes prosecutor, which not only characterizes my most recent experience, and the majority of my time was spent doing violent crimes, but also is an overview of my entire career in the district attorney's office. Um, I was surprised at uh, the tenor of the uh, race, but... Um, At the end of the day, the voters get to decide how important they feel that the ballot designation is. There's so little information about judges, but I have to say, judges can have an impact much more so on our lives on a daily basis than even some of our local, state, and national politicians. We've all gotten traffic tickets. I've heard Mm -hmm. about yours. (laughs) Uh, You know, people get divorced, people get in car accidents, uh, people, you know, have a neighbor that, uh, you know, poisons their dog or, God forbid, you know, something. And we get involved uh, in the local way in very intimate environments. You know, we resolve disputes between husbands and wives, parents and children, children and elderly parents. And uh, we're really integral to kind of keeping uh, the chaos at bay. So I think it's important that the electorate looks at our record, our endorsements. We all have websites. Uh, I have a Facebook page. I don't know how to operate it. (laughs) I have a teenage Uh, daughter for that. What what are some of your most, uh, your proudest endorsements, the ones that are have been Uh, most rewarding to you to receive? Well, other than my dad, who's endorsed me. Oh, that's sweet. Um, I've been endorsed by Jackie Lacey, the current uh, district attorney. I'm the only person in my race that's been endorsed by Jackie. I've also been endorsed by... So that's like being endorsed by your boss. Yes, which she did not endorse my opponent, so that kind of makes her... I endorsement uh, more significant to me. Uh, I've been endorsed by Sheila Kuehl. I've also been endorsed by Mike Antonovich. So I like to say I have bipartisan support for a nonpartisan race. I've been endorsed by uh, Congresswoman Maxine Waters. I've been endorsed by Reverend Cecil Murray. 
Um, so I have a wide range, and I have a lot of law enforcement endorsements. Yeah, I saw that on and, boatload. And defense attorneys. So um, my defense attorney uh, friends, foes, and colleagues have really stepped up and given me their support and um, helped me throughout this campaign. So I have a very broad base of uh, support, of which I'm and endorsements, which I'm very proud of. I mean, it's not very often you have both the cops and the defense attorneys on your side, <laughs> yeah, but I do. Rarity. That's good. Yeah. Bringing, or Sheila Kuehl and Mike Antonovich, mm-hmm. or, you know. So Awesome. That's yeah. quite an accomplishment. I did have another question. Uh, uh, mandatory minimums is also kind of big. Uh, I want to know, A, what latitude, I, I, think, I assume there's no latitude, really, mandatory minimums. As a judge, do you have, and then is there anything that you can do as a judge, if you don't agree with them, to motivate that to fall? Well, mandatory minimums are usually done at the federal level, not so much at the state level, and there has been some modifications in sentencing. But I can say this. Judges in general will look at the entire criminal history of the uh, defendant or litigant that appears before them. They'll look at the current crime. They'll look at the pattern of criminal history. Is it escalating? Is it de-escalating? As we all know, as criminal defendants typically age, their propensity for violence tends to fall. Mm -hmm. Are there drug or alcohol issues? Is there a mental health history? What does the uh, family structure look like? Is the person married? Does he have children? Uh, There's a whole range of things that we can look at. We can look at the length of time between the latest, the last offense and the current offense. So there's a whole set of variables that we as sentencing judges can look at in trying to mete out justice fairly and impartially every day. And I will be no different. But actually, it's the electorate that really helps decide, frankly, in the state of California, some of the mandatory sentencing schemes, because they often get put on the ballot as some initiative, Mm -hmm. much like Prop 47. And then, you know, we judges are forced to, you know, whether we agree with the law or not, we have to... um, uh, dole it out in, in the, how it's written, yeah. and that's so often voted vote. on. It's so just, important to vote. I mean, I cannot say it enough. Yeah. Um, please, 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 if you've not already, took a, take a look at the ballot. I know the pamphlets are all out there. Some, reading through some of it is a little like watching paint dry, but yeah. they're really so important. Well, these are these are initiatives that really will impact our lives, our quality of life on a daily basis. Yeah. And so Other than we maybe the death penalty, but that doesn't apply yeah. to most people. But when you're a juror... <laughs> You know, you could be called yeah. for those kinds of cases. And then, you know, we don't want to have to, we, we cover a case and then we're like, what are solutions? What are solutions? And it's like, well, pe- more people should have showed up yeah, to let's vote. let's wait till November and, you know. But speaking- well, that's interesting that you mentioned that because when I've spent time in South L.A., you know, obviously there's a certain level of discontent. And I understand that on some level. And I say to people, I said, look, if you want to change the system, then go to jury duty. Mm-hmm. Become... Uh, raise your children to get involved in law enforcement and be part of the solution yeah. by being part of the change. Yeah. What are, what are some of the obstacles that you've seen for people getting into law enforcement, um, minorities or, or otherwise, that, that would help bring about more fairness? Well, we, we need change, and I think what has to happen is that uh, minority communities are underrepresented by their own people within the community. Although that is changing over time, slowly but surely. But, uh, you know, I have many uh, African-American friends, for example, and uh, they're DAs and in law enforcement. And sometimes they have been ostracized by family members and members of their own community for being told that they're a sellout or worse. And uh, that's part of the barriers and hurdles that need to be torn down and overcome. 
um, to help be part of the solution. Yeah, and I think mm-hmm. that's good because sometimes we can get so uh, upset with what we see and uh, Sometimes it is correct in a situation to speak negatively of what we've seen law enforcement do. But if we make too many blanket statements and we don't follow it up by saying that these are the police in this situation, this doesn't speak for all police, and um, the, and, and, and truth be told, to highlight some of the cases where we do see a police acting heroically, although you know some people can say that they you act heroically that. every day. <laughs> you never yeah. hear that. Yeah, and, and some of the cases that well, we have cover. Have. I think we had one or two where we watched with the police, where we said, "Okay, that was obviously." Yeah, clear. but al- but also um, we've talked about cases where uh, police officers have tried to come forward and claim that there is sort of like this corruption oh, yeah. within their department, and that they get bullied and ostracized by their uh, coworkers, and yeah. they come forward, and then they sue, and then they succeed. So we do talk about uh, cases like that because there are uh, police officers trying to change yeah. the system from the inside out. And I think that it is. Well, that's com- happening within the FBI now. They're yeah. starting to come out. Um, yeah. You're going to be hearing more about that, even in a, in a bureaucratic organization, law enforcement organization like the FBI. But the change has to start from within. It starts from within the person, and then within the organization, and hopefully it can spill out into the community. Well, I think that's an awesome last word, Chaka. Do yeah. you have anything that you want to add? I, I, I want to know if there is there any one thing about the LA criminal system that. If you could change, you would change it. I know we're so overburdened and, you know, housing concerns. What's that one thing for you? We need to be able to work on the mental health uh, slash homeless issue. And the problem with the mental health situation, as I've seen it as sort of an insider for the last 26 years, is that many people that are homeless, that's a choice that they make. We cannot round them up and put them in shelters. We cannot force them to take the medication that they so desperately need. I would have many defendants come before me who had mental health issues. And while they were incarcerated, we could make sure they got their medication, they got appropriate food, they got appropriate medical care and treatment. They weren't using drugs and mixing you know, psychotropic medications or some kind of psychological medications with street drugs to self-medicate. And we got some stability in their lives. And then when they're released from custody, as so often happens, we go back to what is old and familiar and comfortable. Yeah. And we cannot force people to take their medication. And it's a problem. And it doesn't matter race, creed, color, socioeconomic status, uh, you know, gender identity, uh, sexual preference orientation. It doesn't matter. This is a problem that's endemic to our society. And we try to put a lot of resources towards these problems, and they just don't seem to be getting any better. Yeah. I mean, it's hard for to, to to change. I mean, any of us that try and make a you know, small habit change or, or a big one, we go back to what's comfortable, even if what's comfortable and familiar is a terrible situation. Yeah. I know, I mean, this is not the same thing at all, but I know that I can relate to this more personally. When, when I was leaving a job that I didn't like, that I didn't find fulfilling, but it's familiar and it's secure, and you got the money and the no direct and that people stay in bad relationships yes 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 so so one of the things uh, I mean that we can do on an individual level is to work on overcoming our own fears and uh, fears of changing and improving ourselves and hopefully that that will help ripple effect into people who really do need a major shift in their lives but it is very scary for them as it is for us to make even less daunting changes yeah all right. Well, I think that is it. That is the close of our hour together. Thank you so much, Deborah, for being here. It was a pleasure here. to be here. Thank you for having yeah, me. Thank, thank you for joining you. us. Thank you. Thank you.
All right, Justice fans, be sure to get out there and vote in three weeks and join us next week for another episode of Justice is Served. In the meantime, like, comment, tweet me at Chelsea Galicia. You can find me at Chalaka Strong, Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat. And we'll see you next week. Bye, everyone. Bye, guys. From executives Kevin Undergaro, Dario Kristen, Tiana Hobson, and the entire BHL staff, we would like to thank you for supporting Black Hollywood Live the first online broadcast network dedicated to African-American entertainment. For questions and comments, contact us. Info at blackhollywoodlive.com. Like us on Facebook, tweet us, or Instagram us at BHL Online. And I am the official voice of Black Hollywood Live, Scipio. Instagram me at KingXOBay. Thanks for tuning in. Hollywood Redefined. The views expressed here are those of the host owner and do not necessarily reflect the views of BHL or its owners or principals.